this the right spot? Am I good back there, David? No? I'm actually serious. I don't know where to go. This way? Oh, over here? I'm in the totally wrong spot. Hold up. Give me a thumbs up. Yep, okay, right on. Well, hi, my name's John. I am the Youth and College Ministry Director here at UPC, and uh, our scripture for today is Ezra chapter 5. You'll find Ezra in your Old Testament between the books of uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Job. And uh, while we are turning there, I just want to extend a warm welcome to y'all on Sunday morning. A warm welcome to, to those who are watching online, and especially a warm welcome to if you're age 10 and under in this sanctuary right now. And a special blessing to your parents who have brought you. Um, it's, it's a delight to get to gather with God's people, both in person here for worship and online. And what we're going to do today in the book of Esther is we're going to study chapter 5. And before we get into this, I want to hit you with a little bit of context, because Esther is a narrative. Esther is a story, and if we just jump into the story without knowing exactly where we are, it won't make quite as much sense. And so what I want to do is just a little bit of context. So remember that God's people are in exile. They're in Persia. Haman, a Persian official, has sent out a decree that all the Jewish people are going to be exterminated. Esther, by God's grace, by God's providence, for such a time as this, has been raised up to the position of queen in the Persian Empire. And God is going to providentially work through her in order to preserve his people. And so that's where we're at in the story. The proclamations to destroy the Jewish people have gone out. People have heard this and have lamented. And now Esther has decided it's time for her to be raised up and to step into this position as interceding for God's people. And so what we're going to do as we study Esther chapter 5 is I want to look at three scenes. Chapter 5 moves through three scenes, and in each scene there's a bit of contrast, there's a bit of tension through ordinary kind of everyday things in the lives of God's people and the Persians. And God takes those ordinary things and works out his extraordinary providence in order to preserve his people. Extraordinary providence through ordinary means. I'm going to read the chapter in its entirety. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get to work. Hear now God's holy and inspired life-giving word. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne, inside the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing there in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even up to half my kingdom. And Esther said, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even up to half my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. 
And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he, was, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, and all the promotions with, with, with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above all the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, give us a wisdom and a discernment as we approach these words today. That we would see, eye, that we would have eyes to see how you are at work through ordinary means, working out your extraordinary providence to preserve and to care for your people. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would humble us as we approach your word that you would give us a magnified picture of the grace of Jesus in our hearts and minds, that we would grow in love for you and for each other. And we pray this all in your holy and powerful name, Jesus. Amen. One of my favorite books is The Lord of the Rings, all three of them, and I can't believe that I've been on staff here for almost two years and I've yet to use Lord of the Rings as an example in a sermon. And if I have, don't let me know because that will ruin this portion of my sermon. But just really quick, I want to do some maths with you. Uh, some numbers. So the Fellowship of the Ring has 177,227 words. The Two Towers, the second book, has a slightly more modest 143,436 words. And The Return of the King, the final book in the trilogy, has an even slimmer and trimmer 134,462 words. All totaled, that is 455,125 words almost half a million words to get this story out. Now, I say that because that's a lot of words, a lot of pages, a lot of ink has been spilled. And what is the thing that drives this narrative? What is the thing that helps these almost half a million words unfold on the pages before us? Well, it's a ring. It's a small, ordinary, golden ring doesn't look like much. And one of the characters in the Fellowship of the Ring says, is it not a strange fate that we should suffer so much fear and so much doubt for so small a thing? Little things, seemingly unimportant and ordinary things, can and often do drive a narrative forward. And that's exactly what we see here in Esther chapter 5. And the first thing, the first movement that I want to introduce to you where a small and ordinary thing begins to kind of create a contrast and a tension that drives the story forward is in the first five verses where we see Esther's entrance into the king's palace. All right, the entrance. Now, in chapter three, like I said before, we learn of this plot for Haman to kill all the Jews. And remember, Haman is in second in command in the Persian Empire. He's kind of like King Ahasuerus's prime minister, and he has this plot. We're going to kill all the Jews. Now, in chapter 4, immediately preceding chapter 5, 
Mordecai, a Jew, and all the other Jews hear of this plot, and the news is understandably met with weeping, mourning, fasting. And it's at this point in the narrative that Esther decides that she was raised up for such a time as this, that she is going to go and intercede for her people before the king, which leads us to the opening scene in chapter 5, where it says, On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace. You see, when she was done fasting with the other Jewish people, with her servants in chapter 4, she puts on her royal robes and she enters the king's palace. And I want you to look really quick back in chapter 4, and I want you to see the shift that happens in clothing, in clothing from 4 to 5. Mordecai learns of the news that all the Jews are going to be killed, and what does he do? Mordecai tears his clothes in chapter 4, verse 1, and he puts on sackcloth and his ashes and then Esther hears about this in chapter 4, verse 4. What does she do? It, this displeases her. So in verse 4, Esther sends garments to clothe Mordecai that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. And so we see this picture in chapter 4 of lamenting and, and weeping, and it's done by putting on sackcloth and tearing of the clothing. But what does Esther do at the beginning of chapter 5 to intercede for her people? She puts on her royal clothes. She puts on her royal garments in order to enter into the realm of royalty, right? And so as we see this contrast between weeping and lamenting and mourning, we see it move towards this, okay, now we're entering into the world of royalty. And so that she might intercede in the world of royalty, she puts on her royal clothes. As she goes into the king's turf, she dresses in a way, in an ordinary way, that would have been acceptable and reasonable for that context. Now, as she does this, as she does this, the author wants us to be aware of a rising tension and create a kind of sense of intrigue so that we're drawn into the narrative. Now, remember, earlier in chapter one, I think, or two, Queen Vashti, the queen before Esther, was called into the king's presence, and she refused. And because she refused to enter the king's presence, she was deposed. She was removed. We don't know exactly what happened to her, but she was no longer the queen, and Esther took her place. And so as we get into this scene of Esther 5, where she's entering into the king's presence, where she's putting on her royalty, this contrast is created with chapter 4, but we're also drawn into this tension of what on earth is going to happen to Esther? What on earth? Is she going to find favor in the king's sight? Is she going to be accepted? Because we know from reading the narrative that it is not lawful for someone to enter the king's presence uninvited. She was risking her life to do this. And so we're left with the question, what's going to happen to Esther standing there in her royal clothes as the king sits there on his royal throne? Is she going to go the way of Queen Vashti or is she going to find favor in his sight? Because this could be the last thing that she ever does. But what we learn is that she does indeed win favor in his sight. The king sees her, extends his golden scepter, and she touches it, signifying that she has now been accepted into his presence. And so what we see here as she enters into the king's presence, there's this radical and exceedingly great contrast where there was weeping, there was fasting, there was mourning, there was lamenting, there was sackcloth, there was ashes. Mordecai wasn't allowed to go to the king's gate where he normally stood because he was in sackcloth and ashes. But now here in five, we're shifted into now Esther, clothed in royalty, is accepted 
where her other people were rejected. And what we see is that it's such a small thing, your clothing. It's such a small, ordinary thing. But when we read Esther, we read it providentially. We read it backwards. We look and see what God has done. We see that God is working through these ordinary things, her clothes, to allow her to enter into the king's world, to allow her to intercede for her people, to allow her to be the agent through which God chooses to preserve his people, all through the bold action of this woman who takes what is ordinarily at her disposal, her clothing, and trusts that God will do something extraordinary through that. Ordinary thing, your clothes, but God uses ordinary things for extraordinary purposes. Now, take a second, ask yourself a question. How would your life be different right now if you believed that God was good enough, that God was powerful enough to take ordinary things, even an ordinary person such as yourself, and do something extraordinary with it to accomplish his mission? Would you risk something like Esther does here? Would you risk your time to go share the gospel? Would you risk your reputation to talk about Jesus at work? Would you risk your money, buying money, giving money to the church to do something great? Would you risk something like Esther does, whatever ordinary thing you have at your disposal, would you risk that, trusting that God would use something ordinary to accomplish his extraordinary purposes? That's the first scene in Esther 5. The second scene we're going to move into is the exchange between Esther and the king. And so Esther, after she's accepted and finds favor in the king's sight, um, the king asks her what she wants, right? Obviously, if she risked death to come into the presence of the king, she's got something on her mind. She wants something from the king, and he knows this. So he asks her, what do you want? And he says, I'll give you whatever you want up to half my kingdom. And now, this is a, a, a tactic that he's using, not to say that he would literally give her 50% of his possessions, but rather that he would be so generous that he would offer her more than she could possibly imagine. Because he had found, she had found favor in his sight, he was going to be so radically generous. Whatever you want, Esther, just ask. And so now we're probably thinking, okay, here it is. She's going to ask that Haman doesn't kill all the Jews. She's going to ask that he lets her people go, that their people can be spared. But what's her big ask? Come to a banquet, you and Haman. I just made it. And so when we look at this exchange, when we look at this exchange, again, we see a contrast between the episode here in chapter 5 and the events that went on immediately preceding it in chapter 4. In chapter 4, upon hearing the news of the potential exter extermination of the Jews, fasting was the order of the day to limit your food intake, to deny yourself the intake of food as a form of lamenting, as a form of weeping. But here in chapter 5, Esther, her big ask, risking life and limb, her big ask is, come eat some food with me. Come eat some food with me. And so what she does in this chapter is that she very wisely and very shrewdly uses the kind of next ordinary tool in her royal two belt. The first one was her royal clothes to enter into the presence of royalty. The second would have been this normal customary practice 
of feasting with the king. If you look back, and you don't have to turn there, but you look back in chapter 1, Esther begins with this proclamation of Ahasuerus the king that there's going to be a feast in all 127 provinces. And so whether or not it was culturally normative or it was just normal for this time, either way, Esther is asking the king to a feast. It's what they would have been doing in that time. And so she knows that. She knows this is an ordinary thing going on in the empire, and she uses this to advance her agenda. So Haman and the king come to the feast. They get to the part of dinner where they're just drinking wine afterwards. Uh, that's the good part of dinner. Uh, and the, the king says again, Esther, what do you want? We've come to the feast, but this can't be it. This can't be the thing that you want. You've got to want something more, and whatever you want, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. And so now... We're reading this. We're hooked. We're thinking, okay, now's our chance. Esther's going to do the big ask, the big reveal. I'm Jewish. Let my people go. Save my people. Let's get out of here. But again, her question is this. Come to another banquet, another one. Eat some more food with me tomorrow, and then I promise I'll tell you what I'm really about. Why on earth does she wait? Why doesn't she take her chance right then and there and say, it's me, Esther, I'm a Jew, don't let Haman kill all my people, we need to be saved, you're going to do it because I have one favor in your sight. But no, the author doesn't give us that answer. The author doesn't allow us to do that. What we see in this scene, this exchange between Esther and the king, is we see food being the vehicle for this rising tension. We see the feast being this thing that is elaborately drawn out, drawing us in as readers, going, what is going to happen? We have to understand that God is going to work through this providentially and preserve his people, but it can't be yet. It's not the right time. And so this is being extended and drawn out through Esther's use of ordinary, normal things, her clothing and her food, and God is working through Esther to preserve his people, right? When we read this, we need to understand that this isn't just Esther's plan, although it is, and she's shrewdly working it out, but this is God's plan, that God is allowing this to happen so that his people might be saved. Ordinary means, ordinary things, food, but we have an extraordinary God who's using that to work out this narrative. Now, again, ask yourself, what would your life be like if you really believed that God was good enough, God was powerful enough to take something even as ordinary as food, 500 cans of yams, and do something extraordinary with it? Would you consider inviting somebody into your home or in public six feet apart with masks on? Would you consider meeting with somebody that was a political enemy of yours, like Esther and the king? Would you consider meeting with somebody that is, is different than you socially, different than you philosophically, different from you religiously? Would you sit down and have a meal with them, trusting that our God is good enough and powerful enough to work through something as ordinary and simple as food to accomplish his extraordinary purposes? Our God is good, and he does that. And we're going to see how he works his plan out as we continue through this narrative into the third movement. We're going to see emotions as the order of the day. Emotions being the thing that dominate this portion of the narrative, right? We're going to see in chapter 5, verse 9, Haman went out that day joyfully glad of heart 
He's in a good mood. He just got done eating. He just got done drinking. Uh, he feels like his plan is coming to fruition. Uh, he thinks he's on top of the world. He's happy. He is delighted. But then he walks away, away from the feast, and he passes by Mordecai, who's once again taking his post at the king's gate. I guess he's done fasting. He's done lamenting in sackcloth and ashes, and he's allowed back at the king's gate. And Haman passes him by. And when Haman walks past, second in command of the empire, Mordecai neither rises to show honor nor trembles in fear. And this infuriates Haman. How quickly he goes from being joyful and content to infuriated. Haman was so happy and now he's so frustrated. So what the author is doing here, one of the things the author is doing is that there's a contrast in these emotions. What is happening? Why the shift? And as we read this, we're pressed into the action, pressed into the rising tension, asking the question, wondering what is going to happen? Is he going to go the way of Queen Vashti or is God going to save him? And so Haman's response isn't to lash out and to kill him there on the spot. Haman's restraining himself and he goes home. He gathers all his friends together and his wife and he starts recounting all of the things that he's good at, right? I've got lots of sons. I've got lots of money. I've been promoted, right? I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And gosh dang it, people like me. And he's surrounded himself with his yes men. But then, and they've probably all heard this before, so they're like, yeah, Haman, yeah, Haman, we know, we know. But then he drops this nugget of information. And I alone have feasted with Queen Esther and the king. And I alone have been invited to the next feast, the next day, with Esther and the king. And so hearing this new nugget of information, this was different, his wife and all his friends says, okay, okay, you've been invited to this feast. Here's what you're going to do then. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to build a gallows, or it might say in your Bible, might have a footnote, and it might say tree at the bottom. You're going to build a gallows. You're going to build a post. You're going to build it 50 cubits high, and you're going to hang Haman on there tomorrow. You see Haman, or you're going to hang Mordecai on there tomorrow. You see Mordecai refuses to rise when Haman walks past, so now the plan is we're going to lift him up real high in the air. 50 cubits high, and we're going to string them up for all to see. You see, chapter 5 ends with this ominous verse. Haman comes out of the feast happy. He sees Mordecai. He's infuriated. And then chapter 5 ends with this ominous verse. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. You see, the gallows, this is going to be the ordinary thing that is kind of the hinge point for this entrance, for this episode. The gallows, this was going to be the thing that rectifies Haman's embarrassment that Mordecai refused to honor him. It was going to rectify, it was going to calm all his anger that, okay, as long as this pesky, uppity Jewish person, Mordecai, is no longer in the picture, life is going to be good for me. And he's going to make him an example. For all 127 provinces, he's going to lift Mordecai high in the air and see this is what happens when you dishonor the empire. So know your place, Jewish exiles. And so what we see here as chapter 5 comes to a close is this great reversal of emotions. Kind of hinging around the gallows, the tree, the giant wooden pole that they're going to string Mordecai on. 
and this is going to be the tool, the ordinary thing that God uses to display his extraordinary providence as he saves and preserves his people through the rest of this narrative. I won't spoil the ending, but I'll just let you know that the gallows ends up not being a picture of humiliation and defeat for the Jewish people. It's not going to be Mordecai that's going to be up there. But rather, God is going to take this thing that was going to, to destroy Mordecai, and he's going to use it to save all of the Jewish people. What would have been a picture of humiliation and defeat becomes a picture of God's extraordinary providence taking what would have been a case of the empire's justice and wrath and turning it out for his people's good. God uses ordinary things to display an extraordinary providence. Now, I could stop here. I could stop, and I'd be making really good time. I could stop here, and it wouldn't be very difficult for you to leave, to take away from this sermon that you as a Christian, should go and attempt great things for God because God is good enough and powerful enough to use ordinary things to accomplish his extraordinary ends. Be like Esther. She was bold. She took a risk. Be like Esther. She invited the king, her political enemy, to a feast so that God might work out his providence. And that's fine. That would be fine. That would, I, that would pass in preaching class probably. That's not a bad takeaway, but I don't want you to take that away only. I want you to know that this story is not about what you and I are going to do. This story is not even really about what Esther's doing. This story is about what God is doing and what God has already done for you. You see, I want you to know even more deeply and have even more confidence in the belief that God has already used simple and ordinary means to work out his extraordinary providence for you in your life. And I want you to consider Jesus who entered our world, how? Wrapped in swaddling clothes. Our King Jesus, who dressed not up to his royal station as Esther does, but dresses down to our station to enter into our world so that he might intercede for us before the Father, right? Consider Jesus, who was condemned himself so that we might become accepted before God. And then as his earthly ministry came to a close, Jesus does what? He gathers his disciples for a meal, bread and wine. And he says to them, this bread is my body broken for you. This wine is the blood shed for the new covenant. So whenever you eat and drink these things, do them in remembrance of me. Ordinary thing, food, that God uses to accomplish his extraordinary purposes. And after dinner, what does he do? What kind of death is he going to die? An ordinary execution at the hands of the empire. He's going to be strung up on a tree, on a pole, lifted high as a picture of shame and humiliation and defeat. But instead of the cross being the picture of the Roman Empire defeating this upstart Jewish rabbi, that is going to be the picture of deliverance and salvation for all who repent and put their faith in the Lord Jesus. You see, I made that note that it's translated tree there. Gallows could also be translated as tree because we see later in the New Testament in Galatians 3 that Christ redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 
ordinary things, clothing, food, and a tree, but God uses them to work out not just the preservation of his covenant people in the Old Testament, but the salvation of all his people in the New Covenant. In Lord of the Rings, the one ring looks very normal and ordinary, but then there's this wonderful scene in the beginning of the fellowship, in the movie anyway, where Gandalf throws the ring into the fire and asks, what do you see, Frodo? And Frodo at first sees nothing, but then after a while, the fire reveals this language identifying the one ring as the ring of power, as the thing that's going to control all the other rings, as the reason why all of the conflict and bloodshed and journeys are going to happen. Things can look ordinary, but in the hand of an extraordinary God, they take on a power and a might that you and I could never imagine. So when we read Esther and when we live our lives, we need not despise the small things because there are no truly small and ordinary things in the hand of an ordinary God who's working out his extraordinary providence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We glory and your plan of preservation and salvation for your covenant people. Jesus, give us eyes to see the world that you have created, that there are no unimportant, unsignificant things because you are Lord over all, and through all things you can work out your plan of salvation for those who love you. Father, I pray that you would give us a, a sense of gospel risk as Esther does, going into where she is unwanted, that we might proclaim your goodness boldly without fear. But Father, I pray even more that we would have a profound sense of knowing that more than us going, you have already come to us through your son, Jesus, that we might be washed clean and made new. We love you, Lord, and we pray this all in your holy and powerful name. Amen. Amen.